Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and thine all holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. That's a good prayer, isn't it? Christ is in our midst. It's fun to have a couple extra people here, you know, with church school going on. Thank you, guys. And then I know you guys have to split, so when you do, just go. No big deal. Just kind of... Um, don't let the door hit you. No. Um, so, um, I've been reading. I've thought, I brought a book that I'm reading. You know, we like reading in the Orthodox Church. Um, when I was a kid, television was called books. You know that quote? From Princess Bride. I love that movie. It's a good one. Walter, Walter Matthau said that. And uh, so um, I like to share, just kind of give you guys a glimpse of the type of material literature that's out there. Last week I talked about a book called um, St. Nectarios and uh, about the life of St. Nectarios because we mentioned him in our teaching time. And then uh, this, the past week or so, I've been working on a book call, uh, called St. Paisios the Athenite. And uh, I almost quoted him today because when I was talking about the, the zeros. Um, such an interesting situation that that girl was sitting there just doodling zeros in her notebook. And uh, it reminded me of something St. Paisios said. You know, the, the way of the Orthodox faith is the way of humble love. And uh, if you read the lives of the saints, you'll see something that seems counterintuitive to the way of the world, which is success, triumph, triumph over, even over and against other people, uh, competition, you know. If you succeed, it means other, someone else has to fail. And so we, we cultivate a kind, a kind of sensation, you know, a joy that comes, an excitement that comes from from uh, triumphing over others. Not just triumphing in ourselves to do well, but even triumphing over other people. Um, Because if someone else fails, it means I'm more likely to succeed. Strangely enough, it turns into a pathology of rejoicing at the failure and suffering of other people, whether or not I succeed. The teaching of the church is that I'll give a, a concise definition of envy. It is, it's sorrowing at the success of others and celebrating the failure of others. You get that? Rather than celebrating with those who are triumphing, who are succeeding, it's sorrowing when other people succeed. And rather than mourning with those who mourn, like St. Paul teaches us in Romans 12. I love Romans 12. 
it sums up so much of the Christian way of life. And if you haven't picked up your Bible recently, or, you know, ever, you know, open up Romans 12. It gives you a really good glimpse of what the Christian life is all about. Romans chapter 12. That's your rule for this week. Giving you a prescription. We use the word rule in the Orthodox Church. We don't, it doesn't mean um, a law um, <clears throat> or a strict injunction per se in the church. Usually it's something that a rule is a, me- a measure, something that we're prescribed to do for our benefit or for our salvation. So I'm giving you this prescription. Like your, doc- like your doctor gives you. Do your physical therapy or or your homeopath, maybe, if you don't have a regular doctor. you know, Take your melatonin, or who knows, whatever. Wheatgrass shots. Well, I'm telling you to uh, draw near to the church and read Romans 12. Love Christ, love his church, and seek the way of humility and love. And uh, in the lives of the saints, one of the, if, if you get deeper into the lives of saints, and you're not just reading brief accounts of the lives of the saints, which tend to show their courage, you know, in the face of persecution or their miracles that they did. You know, we have little, like in the prologue of Alcrit is a collection of the lives of the saints, a two-volume set. And it's looked at as probably the most, the classic kind of orthodox devotional reading. As a little version of the lives of some of the saints on a given day and a little reflection, some reflection questions in a miniature homily, usually about a paragraph long. And, uh, but you just get the highlights. And if you get deeper into the lives of the saints, you will be struck by what profound humility a lot of them had. Selflessness. Total, utter selflessness. And one of the things that's precious about the lives of contemporary saints, like this one, I don't remember what year he reposed, but let me show you something. Interesting. Um, he's one of those. He's on the wall over there. Third one over in that little trio. Um, we have color photos even, you know, of contemporary saints. It's pretty amazing. And because they, they lived in modern times, we can relate to them in many ways. The experience, you know, the advent of technology, and we just know more about them. Not as much was lost to history. Was it 94? What a guy. Thank you. Let's see. It was 11 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday, July 12th, 1994. Yeah. God bless you for that. Thank you. And uh, I happened to just turn right to that page right when you said that. So I knew it was toward the back of the book, but totally humble. And actually, in a world that's struggling to be, become more than um, a zero, we feel like, you know, we're, we feel like a, a zero and I want to be a one or a two or something higher. We're trying to be something other than what we were. We were actually created to be, as, to be that zero with the one in front of it, with God, the identity that God gives us, with that identity that is the image of God implanted in us. But we struggle so hard 
and we're never satisfied. Because the only way to become who you truly are is to become nothing, apart from God. To understand that there is no life apart from God. There is no breath, no purpose, no energy, no atoms, no breeze, no cosmos, nothing apart from God. And therefore there's no me apart from Him. But we've, we've been struggling so hard to live a life as if we could, you know, be apart from Him in some way. And the struggle of the, of the saints, especially the, the monastic ones, is to, to really become like, to disappear so that God can appear. I become nothing and then God can finally have his way in my life. And he was so sweet and humble, someone approached him. He was trying to live a life of prayer in the desert. I mentioned him last night after Vespers a little bit. And uh, all he wanted to do was live a life of quietness and not to be separate from other people, but to be focused on God. What happened is he ended up being a powerful intercessor and one through whom God worked many, performed many miracles. And uh, he didn't want attention. None of the saints really wanted attention. Just like I mentioned last week about the Holy Trinity. You know, the, the, the saints in being incorporated into the life of the Holy Trinity, are never striving to bear witness to themselves, but always to God. And so there's a, there's a classic kind of formula in the Orthodox spiritual life for people who are seeking spiritual guidance. They'll go out to the desert, or they'll go to a monastery, and they'll say, or they'll go to their priest or something, and they'll say, give me a word. You guys ever heard that? Give me a word. Yorunda, which means elder. Give me a word. And what did he say? Let me gift you with the most profound speech that you've ever heard. No, he didn't. He said, what can I tell you, my children? What can I tell you? For years I've been struggling to reach zero, and I've yet to reach it. That was his word. A non-word, you know. It's so beautiful. So I thought I would share that, just that with you. And I shared last night, too. I know not everyone can make it to Vespers, but I highly encourage, try to come sometimes. If you can't make it every week, um, maybe make it once a month. And then catch on. It's, I always kind of tell people, if you're thinking about whether or not to come to a service on a given day, just think about whether or not I'll be there. And that that helps sway your decision. Because... The, the cute joke is, I will be there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, praying with you or praying for you, either way. <laughs> but um, I shared this after Vespers a little bit, that um, as I've been reading, I've been, I take, I used to be a highlighter and an underliner and a, you know, I used to really engage and then I started thinking, I don't know, I can't do this to my books. You know? How can I do this like this? I'm reading about the sacred life of someone or I've got, you know, the, the hardback version of the homilies of St. Isaac the Syrian. I can't use a highlighter anymore. So I've got this little thing where I'll take a little pencil and I'll mark, put a little mark in the margin, you know, do, do, to kind of do a little section 
or a little dot for a, a sentence or something. And I've been going back and uh, writing them in a little notebook. The, this like, kind of poignant or salient quotes that I'm pulling. So I try not to overdo it, especially it's hard if you're reading a really, really good book. Like every line in Abba Isaac. Yes, underline, okay, asterisk, asterisk. double asterisk. You know what I mean? It's hard with certain ones, but I try to, okay, which ones can I actually apply to my life here and now? Rather than it's just, it's deep or it's profound. And so I highly, um, I highly encourage that take, take time to do spiritual reading. And I call it not just reading, but getting to know the saints. Like you're spending time with them. I mentioned that in our Thursday evening class a couple weeks ago. That when I read like St. Ignatius, Briancheninov in his book, The, the Field or The Arena, I call it spending time with him. I'm going to spend time with St. Ignatius because it's a way of getting to know them. I'll tell you two stories before, I, before we go on our, um, our topic. Um, okay, one is a St. Paisios one about miracles. Another one is about St. Sophroni. Some of you may have heard the St. Sophroni one. I told it recently. Someone was visiting the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, England. And uh, one of the things I like to say that orthodoxy reveals is the, the thin veil between temporality and eternity. The thin veil. And um, that's why we, we, we experience in reading Lives of the Saints, St. Paisios, and uh, the one who really taught me that was St. Jacobos, who I look at over there all the time too. Salikis, who there's a book about him called The Garden of the Holy Spirit, which is one of my favorite books. But they have relationships with the saints as if they're living, as if they're, they are contemporary. And uh, someone went to the monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, England, that was founded by St. Sophroni, and asked one of the monks, after St. Sophroni had reposed, how can I get to know, how can I really get to know St. Sophroni? And he was like, just a second. He says, read his books. That's how you should get to know him. It was like, let me ask him really quickly. Yeah, he says, read his books. That's how you can best get to know him. And then uh, another story about St. Paisios. You can come over here, Elizabeth. Are you? What's that? Oh, okay. Sounds good. Um, a story about St. Paisios, just a, another really quick, sweet story. Um, there, was a man, there was a man who was a sociologist who grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, he became an academic and, and kind of secularized, lost his, his focus on the Christian life, and kind of demythologized religion. His name's Kyriakos Makidis. And he, he started studying phenomena, religious phenomena, miracles, and healings. And it landed, led him back to, little did he know, his own faith, the faith of his childhood, Greek Orthodoxy, where there were miracle workers and healers. And he ended up visiting Mount Athos to do you know, a sociological study 
on phenomena. He ended up having a conversion, a, a second kind of conversion there after his, he had been baptized as a child. But he was, he was with uh, the, the, a monk. I think he was the abbot of a monastery. His name's now, he's Metropolitan Athanasios of Limassol. He's a, a bishop. But they were going to see St. Paisios. And the monk that he was with said, Kyriake, which means, that's how they say Kyriakos. And when you're directly speaking, Kyriake, ask him anything, but don't ask him how he performs the miracles. He doesn't like that. So they got up there. They went, they went to his little cell. He had a little kind of hut surrounded by a fence where people would ring a little bell and to get his attention. And um, a lot of people were there. And he was surprised to see this sprightly, energetic little man with a little white beard and a knit cap, cracking jokes with people, making people laugh, giving them sweets and things. A little sweet, like a Turkish delight and a glass of water. And they waited in line and got up, got up to him. And uh, we were so excited to be you know, with Elder Paisios. And the first thing he asked was, how do you do the miracles? <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, before he could, the, the monk could slap his hand. But you know what he said? Um, I, don't, I don't do the miracles. The Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit performs the miracles, the healings, the answers to prayer. And he understood that because, going back to that quote, because he was a zero. And he understood that God was the, the one there. So anyway, just a little, maybe appetizer before we get into our, our actual topic. So today we're talking about the foundation of the Orthodox faith. Let's get into our chapter and um, the format that I usually do is read a little bit, comment as we go. Um, it would be nice if we could do the whole chapter. We have an hour left, just over, just over an hour. So we'll see if we can get through the chapter. Depends on, you know, as I say, depends on how much talking I do. But I'll try to keep it focused. This is pretty basic, okay? So for those of you who have already been exposed to orthodoxy and, you know, read some of the introductory theological material. It's pretty basic, pretty foundational, but we'll build on it as we go. And I'm going to check one last thing here. Someone was just trying to log in. We left a few minutes ago. Oh, okay. Okay. All is well. So, as the body of Christ... The church is mankind's participation in the unending life of the Holy Trinity. And I mentioned a, an, a big word. I don't know if I've written it on the board for you guys, but it's a cool word. Do you remember what it was? The anthropos. The anthropos, and then we could say like variation. We live the, the anthropic life. It's a cool word. But we call Christ the Theanthropos, which literally means the God-man. All Theanthropos means the God-man. And uh, 
So, so if Christ is the God-man in the church, as we claim, following the teaching of St. Paul, is the body of Christ, then the church is a theanthropic organism, as I mentioned in today's homily, that was just, just the right length today. So God became man. This is one of the most famous statements in the Orthodox um, theological corpus. God became man so that man might become God. And this is this famous saying by St. Athanasios of Alexandria, who lived in the 4th century, sums up the message of orthodoxy. And that automatically scares some people because they say, well, only God can be God. And that's true. That is true. Um, Only God can be uncreated. But in that God is love and created us for union with him, we become, as we often say, we become by grace what he is by nature, one with him. Not competing with God or better than God, not God without God, but God-like with God. And so it's a bold statement right at the beginning to say this is what humankind was created for. And I always like to tell people, this is why you have such an intense longing within you for what is real, what is true, what is meaningful. That's why you're constantly dissatisfied with the things of the world and its offerings. You'll never, you'll never find satisfaction until you find it in God. Or to use quote St. Augustine, what did he say? My soul will not rest until it find its, finds its rest in you. Something like that. It's a beautiful word from St. Augustine. So God created mankind in his own image so that mankind might become like God, sharing in his eternal divine life. God's goodwill toward his creatures was not limited to the act of creation, however. Seeing that man was unable to realize the likeness of God in himself because of his sinfulness, God sent his own son, the very image of his person, into the world to take human nature upon himself and restore it to its original glory in the image of God. In other words, God, the creator of all things, became man so that we might become like him. And in the words of the liturgy of St. Basil, which we hear on the first of the year, on the first of the civil year, January 1st, and then we hear it throughout the Sundays of Great Lent. We serve the the liturgy of St. Basil. It's a little bit of a longer version of the liturgy. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being likened to the body of our lowliness, that he might liken us to the image of his glory. See you guys. God bless you. So he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being likened to the body of our lowliness that he might liken us to the image of his glory. That's a really beautiful way of saying what I was trying to say to that guy at the rainbow gathering that that one day. We couldn't save ourselves. We needed God's help. So this is known as theosis or deification. And theosis, and I know some of you guys need to go get kids and stuff, so I understand. No problem. But uh, theosis is the word that we use in the Orthodox Church um, when we're talking about salvation.
theosis, deification. Also another, do you guys know the other one that we use for that? Theosis, deification. No? I'll give you a candle. Divinization. Divinization. Yeah, I got it right. <laughs> Theosis, deification, divinization. They're all kind of the same words. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, synonyms. But uh, this is why the world was created. This is why we would say this is why you were born. This is why I was born. And this is the truth that orthodoxy proclaims, that we were created for this. There's a really good book. It's a little, little short book. And I don't know if it's in publication in, in paper anymore, but I have a PDF of it on our St. Paul website in our resource library. And it's called Theosis, the Purpose of Man's Life. And I would recommend reading that along with Romans 12 <laughs> for, your, for some devotional or spiritual reading. And I told the guy to read it once and he printed it out so that he can read it on paper. So um, you might do that or you can just, I mean, you can bring it up on your phone or Kindle or something these days. But Theosis, the purpose of, I think it's called Theosis, the purpose of man's life. I can tell you really quickly. St. Paul... You go to media, go to resource library, and uh, scroll down a little bit. Theosis, the true purpose of human life. So you might want to check that out. Um, but what does it mean to become like God? Or another verse that we love in the Orthodox Church, Saint, uh, Second Peter 1 to become a partaker of the divine nature. When the church answers this question, she's engaging in what we call theology, which literally means a word about God. I remember growing up, a guy used to call it God talk. We're talking about God. <laughs> a guy in my hometown, we had a, a, a farmer's market, and he would set up a little a booth in the farmer's market, and it said, God talk on it. And people could stop by and just, okay, we want to talk about God. Come on over. So um, doing, doing theology, so to speak, is to, is to give a word about God or to discuss what we believe about God. And the church is able to make statements about God because the only reason we can do theology, we would say, that's not purely speculative, is because God has revealed himself to mankind. Through his act of creation, through as many acts of mercy and displays of power throughout history as recorded in the Bible and especially in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. God has made himself known to those whom he has created in his own image. Thus the church's theology, what she says about God, is based upon what God has revealed about himself. That's one of the, the essential aspects of you might call orthodox epistemology, or the, the, the nature of how we can believe what we believe. We, one of our claims in the church is that all we can know about God can only be known about God because God has made himself known. 
that the source of the source of authority is the is God's revelation um, in and through the church. Beginning though with his incarnation, to use a lot of fancy words. For this reason, when the church answers the question, what does it mean to become like God? She does not look to theories of modern psychology or sociology for the answer. Rather, she turns to the teachings and life of her Lord. And it all begins like, uh, like Father Thomas Hopko said when he gave a, a really lovely clergy seminar to us. And he said, you got to begin with this one thing, that everything that we do is about a man named Jesus. That's what it's all about. Man named Jesus, first century Jew named Jesus, he said. And uh, so that's where we begin. And I'm going to read, I have, we have these quotations that are from the King James version of the Bible in the book, but I have the, the new King James uh, also here so, so that it's a little easier to read out loud. Some of the King James is hard to read aloud sometimes. So we're quoting from Matthew 11. The Lord said, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So the foundation of everything in the ch- everything the church believes and teaches is the fact that God is not some impersonal essence or philosophical principle, but the Father who exists in an eternal communion of love with His Son and His Spirit, and who speaks to those whom He has created face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. A person, as opposed to an individual, exists only in relationship to other persons. For God, this relationship is eternal. For the Father is never without His Son and His Spirit. Love is not an attribute or characteristic of God. Love is not an attribute or a characteristic. It's not something outside of God. But it defines His very being. And the best definition of God, if God, if God had to be encompassed somehow in, limited to human language, is that God is love. God is love. I always like to remind people then it means that nothing else is is actually love then love is not love love is not self-defining as the the popular slogan goes these days love is love meaning as long as no one gets hurt it's all good but we believe that God is love he is the source of meaning and purpose and authority actually you know and truth in our life and He is love. And true love cannot be experienced outside of life in Him. Again, that's why we have this insatiable longing for that which is greater, that which is more, that which is beyond of the limitations of our own understanding. It can only be experienced intimately and personally. According to the book of Genesis, mankind was created in the image of God. And this is, this is one of the things that we would say is, um, you know, it's at the essence of, of our anthropology, of our view of what it means to be human, to be created in the image of God. 
And then who is this God? The God of love. As I mentioned last week, the persons of the Trinity who are, who are in an eternal communion of love with one another, constantly going out from themselves into one another, each never trying to bear witness to himself, but always bearing witness to the other. Um, if you believe in a God and you believe that God is love, then God has to be Trinity, a communion of persons, rather than a monad or an impersonal essence. Saint Sophroni really experienced this in his life. He was a he was a Russian Orthodox, grew up in the church, went off into New Age, and started to think that that what is true is impersonal and abstract. And he was left with a sense of total sense of emptiness. Because there is no love where there are no persons. And he was, he was basically, his life was just degrading into a sense of nothingness. And when there's nothing, when there's no personhood, when there's no persons in relation to one another, there is no meaning for humanity. That's really important. That's why we struggle in conflict so much with one another. This, the struggle that we have in conflict in war, in hatred, in frustration, in anger. That's the total opposite extreme of what we were created for, communion with one another. That's why we know there's something so terribly wrong, you know, uh, because we were created for perfect union. And the opposite extreme of that is what we experience in sin. It actually proves that not that, that war and conflict are what is our lot in life, but the opposite of what we were created for. That's why there's never any contentedness in ultimately in winning a battle and destroying the life of another person, and so on. So we are inherently personal beings. We're created to love as God himself loves. I heard someone say so beautifully and simply once, we weren't just created to to love, but we were created to be love. And uh, another beautiful text from the New Testament is the first, the first epistle letter of St. John, where he talks about love, and he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Our creation in the image of God is the foundation of our very being and determines the purpose of our existence. This means that for man to be truly human, to be what he was created to be, he must attain to the likeness of the Holy Trinity. Man, says St. Basil the Great, is a creature with orders to become God. It's clear, however, that mankind has failed miserably in his divinely appointed task. Instead of growing in the likeness of God, we've cast ourselves into the likeness of the devil because, well, what has the devil done? The devil has used the godlike freedom that God gave in order to turn away from him rather than to turn toward him in love. In order for us to have the freedom to enter into love, we actually have to have the freedom to outrightly oppose it. 
in order for it to be real, for it to be true. So man of himself cannot bridge the gap between his creatureliness and the uncreated glory of God. I like the word creature. You know, it's kind of a weird word if you think about it. Like, you know, if someone's nickname is creature or something. Do you need to come in and grab something? I haven't seen any. Oh, well. Okay, thank you. I can be on the lookout for them, man, okay? Okay. Yeah. There are red ribbon. Okay. All right. Thank you. Maybe they fell behind the bench or something. But, um, but anyway, the word creature literally means one who was created. I like that in reference to human, the human person. And creation, you know, the creatureliness. Creature, like, sometimes means, like, you think of, like, something creepy, you know. If someone's, like I was just going to say, if someone's nickname is Creature. Have you seen Creature lately, you know, like in a movie? Usually some weird-looking guy or something like that. But I like the word, um, I like that word, Creature, because it means one that has been created. So I like to talk about the, the creatureliness of Persons, yeah, of humanity. I heard uh, a connection between how feet represent like being a creature. Feet? Yeah, like feet. And uh, someone connected it once with uh, Moses taking off the sandals Mm -hmm. before the burning bush, and also the angels covering their feet with uh, their wings when they're singing by the throne of God Mm -hmm. as like a sign to like cover their like. Their creatureliness? Yeah. Or to expose it in some sense. Yeah, I don't know. Where did you hear that, do you know? Um, it, was a, it was a YouTube apologist. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you know who? Yeah, it's Sam Shimon. Oh, okay, I don't know who he is. But I don't know very many of them. Okay. Is he Orthodox? Um, he's... Okay. Interesting. I don't know, I'll have to explore. Did he give any did he give any resources like uh, references for that? Okay, don't spend too much time on it, but okay, interesting. So, um Okay, where did I leave off you guys? Is it if mankind could not ascend? Yeah, I think so. Um so if mankind could not ascend to heaven and unite, it, unite itself with God, then it remained for God to come down to earth and unite himself with mankind. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son and Word of God, became man and lived a human life so that mankind might fulfill the end for which he was created, which is union with God. And we'll go to John 1, 14. And the Word and the Word... The word word with a capital W comes from the Greek word logos Um, in Greek. Logos means more than just um, like a written word, but it means reason, purpose, or meaning. Or as I've even heard one theology professor say, God's word is like God's, God's thing, God's act. So it's a, it's a word that's not very easily translated. And it's kind of poorly translated um, as word, 
in English because a lot of times we just think that means written or spoken word. But there's much more to the meaning of logos. So the word, the logos, became flesh. And that's the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the first time, you know, that, that God um, started to real, truly reveal himself in this intimate way, in this act of love that we're talking about. This is the meaning of the doctrine of the incarnation, that the word of God became fully human without ceasing to be fully God. And this is one of the greatest mysteries for us. Um, we truly believe it. Um, and uh, it's, it's something that the church, it's, it's one of the essential doctrines of, of the church, her teaching. And it's what the, the church has really strove to, de- to striven to defend um, from the very beginning. That God became fully human without ceasing to be fully God. So by taking our humanity upon himself, God also assumed all of the consequences of our sinfulness. It was not enough that he merely appear as a man or that he take upon himself only the higher aspects of our nature. For as St. Gregory the theologian said, what is not assumed is not healed. And there were many, many debates, theological debates about, well, he... He became fully man, but he didn't have a, a, a human will. He had to have just the will of God. But he didn't have a, a human will. And they would get into, these, into the weeds. And the Orthodox Church would just say, well, if he was a fully man, he had a, a human will and a divine one without confusion. The Church has always held that because it's always understood this teaching by St. Gregory what is not assumed is not healed, meaning that which would, was not assumed by Christ could not have been healed of our humanity. Another way of just saying, we really believe that he became everything that we are without, without sinning, experiencing the consequences of sin without sinning himself. So to heal and redeem fallen humanity, Christ had entered into the lowest depth of the human existence And he had to break the stranglehold of sin and death upon the human race. This is the significance of the cross. The Son of God descended into the pit of Hades in order to lead mankind up to the heights of heaven. And we'll talk more about, we'll get more into details later on. We'll talk about the afterlife, for example, later on in our catechism. St. Mark the ascetic, a 5th century monastic, wrote, All the penalties imposed by divine judgment upon man for the sin of the first transgression, death, toil, hunger, thirst, and the like, all of the consequences, we could say, of man's sinfulness, Christ took upon himself, becoming what we are, so that we might become what he is. That's another little axiom of the church. Like, we've got three really important ones so far. Um, We've got uh, God became man. God became man. Oh, no, no comma. So, so that 
might become God. So good. If God, what is not assumed is not healed. These are good ones for your kind of your, your personal spiritual theological arsenal. And then the last one is this, um, basically, he became what we are. I'll kind of summarize it by putting it in brackets here. He became, how do I? Yeah. What we are. How does it? How's it worded? So that we might become what he is. Isn't that the same as the first one? Huh? S- similar. Yeah. Become what he is. Yeah. What he is. And sometimes, um, sometimes this one is. I don't know. I don't know if there's another quote. I'll try to find, but. Um, I mentioned he became what we are so that we might become what he is can also be written as um, we become we become by grace. We become by grace what he is by nature. We never become what he is by nature. All kind of different ways of saying the same, emphasizing the same point. And I would, I would see the latter one as like, um, I think more directed towards like, um, like the punishment penalty of mm-hmm. sin. Where I think even St. Paul talks about that Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah, exactly. And it's also there. I mean, it's in the New Testament, in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. So, so then the incarnation, therefore, is mankind's passage from death to life. In uniting our humanity to himself, the Son of God presents us to his Father, and we share in the life of the Holy Trinity. So from Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. United with the eternal Son of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to stand before God, our Creator, and we can say, it's a bold statement. That's why we say without boldness, I mean, that, we, that, we, um, that with boldness and without condemnation, we may say, when we before we say this in our services, we, we call God our Father. It's as, if, it's as if to claim that we are His children, and who are we 
Who are we to claim that we are the children of God unless he's adopted us as his sons and daughters? (laughs) Um, As his children. And when we call God our father, implying that we are his children, that it means it means all that that implies then that we want to be like him and of him and for him. And we want to understand that our life is because of him. To sum it all up, to, to say, yeah, we believe that he is both the source and the destination of our being, of our life. The work that Christ accomplished once and for all in Palestine, you know, that first century Jew almost 2,000 years ago, is not limited to people who lived back then. As we talked about a couple sessions ago, it's not just about the historical reality, the historicity of it, of it all. But it's about the theological reality and the revelation of God. For Christ assumed our human nature in its entirety and placed it on on the throne of God at the Father's right hand. And that's, that's actually what we celebrate when we celebrate what we call the Feast of Ascension. It wasn't just after, after Christ became man, and I don't know if you guys know the story, but we'll get into it more later. He became man. He came to do what he wanted to do, do miracles, die on the cross, rise again. And what's the, oh, he's not going to linger anymore. He's got to go somewhere, so he's going to go to heaven. Bye, you know. That's, that's not the purpose of that ascension. The ascension is actually that he, he physically left the earth, and when he ascended to heaven, he did it, not leaving his humanity behind, but bearing his, hum, his theanthropic person completely. He, didn't, he wasn't any less human at the ascension, and so he proved that the fulfillment of the, of the human identity, to be a divine, to be with God, it's really beautiful and deep. So um, that's that's and that's what we're saying here when saying that human nature in its entirety was placed on the thr- the throne of God at the Father's right hand. So Christ was not simply an individual unrelated to the rest of us nor did he cease being human after his resurrection and ascension to the Father. In other words, through the, in, through the incarnation, excuse me, in other words, although the incarnation had a beginning in time, the Annunciation of the Virgin Mary, which we celebrate um, <laughs> nine months before the Feast of Christmas Nativity, um, and her conception of Christ, so the incarnation has no ending. Okay. It's, a, it's possible for every human being to share in the life of the Holy Trinity by being united to Christ because he's already united himself to us and has promised to abide with us forever. For us to experience the life of the Trinity, however, we must live the life that Christ came to give us. That is, we must allow his humanity to become our humanity, transforming us by the power of the Holy Spirit into his body, So St. Paul calls the church, as we mentioned early on, the body of Christ and explains how we as different human beings can become one body with Christ. He says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, 
whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. Meaning, we become co-partakers of the life that God has given us by accepting his love, his act of love that he, that he accomplished for us by becoming man and overcoming death by death. And then those of us who are many become participants in that, that life of Christ. We become members of one another and we form his body. And one of the things I, w- I wanted nuanced uh, to, to talk about the implication of that, which, which I think I talked about maybe a couple sessions ago too, was that, that if, if, the, um, if the church is the body of Christ, and if Christ is one, there aren't many Christs, but one, one person, um, that, um, that the church as the body of Christ can never be divided. So I hear people say, like, there was a split in the church. You know, there might have been a split in a congregation between people who disagreed on a theological thing, or as we talked about music. When I was a kid, we went from, I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like this, we, we went from singing hymns with um, organs to having a band play, and the church totally split over that. It was wild. And it was a real, you know, a lot of drama surrounding that. But, um, but the church itself can never be divided just like Christ can never be divided. And so um, when someone goes into schism, for example, they break away from the body of Christ. Um, they're no longer one with Christ. It's, it's, a, it's one of the greatest tragedies, as we discussed. So, um, okay, where, where did I leave off again? Okay, unless we willingly partake of Christ's life, we have no hope of eternal life. For it's only through him that we're united with God the Father. And we've got some passages from John 6. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. As the sacrament of Christ's presence, the sacrament, another word that we use for sacrament, the Western Western world uses the term sacrament as like something sacred, something that sacred that reveals the God. Uh, we tend to use the word mystery a lot. And we use them interchangeably in the Orthodox Church. But I like the word mystery because, um, I don't know, it seems to open us up to, to that which is being revealed, but that which is also beyond our comprehension. And so as the sacrament or mystery of Christ's presence the church is not primarily an institution, but a life. That's one of the things people struggle with, I think, in this day and age. It's like they want an experience of something that is deep and real, not just, you know, to be a part of the right structure, the right institution. You know what I mean? Because institutions fail. They do. Like, I mean, you have someone good in leadership. Great. The institution is running really well. You get another person who has a different perspective. People get all 
freaked out and you know the place falls apart. It happens with, with churches and worldly institutions. And therefore the church cannot be seen as a merely worldly institution. I like to say that the only, the only thing that makes the church an institution is that it was instituted by Christ. But it's not a worldly structure in that way. And, we're, and, and if you study the history of the church, you see where, where there are problems throughout the history of Christianity. It's when people have tried to, too hard to overly institutionalize the church and turn it into a worldly power. And when that happens, the worldly attempt either peels away from the church itself and goes into schism or stands, has to stand totally corrected and has to return to the place of, of humility and love that we were talking about with St. Paisios. So um, it's a life, the life of the Holy Trinity made accessible to men. Therefore, everything that the church does is a sacrament. That is, it is both the revelation of the life of the Holy Trinity to man and man's participation in that divine life. It's so beautiful. God revealing himself, but not just so that we can see God in some way, like, oh, there you are, you know, but so that we can actually participate in the very life of God, which is true knowledge. True knowledge is experiential. That's why that language of divine eros is so beautiful. You know, when we think of the eros or erotic love, we think of something like romantic and sexual, like exciting, sexual, you know. People think of erotic as being like aroused or something like that. But when the fathers of the church use the term divine eros, like I mentioned earlier, today's homily, um, they're talking about total, total, like, a love affair with God, infatuation, the soul's longing for union with the soul in each and every one of us is likened to a bride longing for her bridegroom. And knowledge is, is often likened to marital union because there really is n- no greater intimacy, you know, human intimacy, than that union that people enter into with one another, that sexual intimacy. And that just pales in comparison to the divine eros, the union that we might experience with God that the soul is longing for, the exchange of life, more than it just being kind of an idea. Oh, yeah, you know, God loves us and we love God. It's something experiential. And it happens so intimately and personally by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And Christ left when he ascended also. He says, I will send you another comforter. And and it's kind of an interesting thing. Why would he do that? Well, while he was physically present, he was was there as, as if an external reality to his people. When he ascended, he allowed those who believed in him who became living vessels of the Holy Spirit to become his body on earth, his living expression, his, his thing on earth, you know. And uh, so to be, to be divinized, you know, 
to be deified. So, uh, continuing on. So everything the church does is a sacrament, meaning a revelation of the mystery of God. You know, we should, we should long as Christians to reveal the mystery of God in everything that we do as well, to live a sacramental life. So that is, so yeah, the revelation and man's participation in the divine life of the Trinity. Nothing which directly pertains to the life of the church is in any way accidental or unimportant. Everything within the church works together to sing the same hymn, hymn of praise Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. All that the church is and all that she does proclaims the dogma, which is a fancy word for, are just firm belief. The dogma of the Holy Trinity and invites mankind to fulfill the destiny, its destiny in the likeness of the God of love. And the foundation of the Orthodox faith, the absolute bedrock of our salvation, is the Trinity and the Incarnation. That God is three persons in communion with one another. And that God has been revealed to us by becoming man, by becoming what we are. If God is not the God of love, then there truly is no purpose for our existence. For between the Trinity and hell, there lies no other choice. That's what we believe. Either we choose love and we believe that love is, not love, but love is God, that God is love. And we're, each and every one of us will have the ability or have had, will have, and are, are having constantly the ability to choose between the two, between a life of love or hell, which is the myth that we can live as separate from him. If Christ is not God made man, then there's no hope for our salvation. For mankind could never share in the life of God had God not first taken upon himself the life of man. The Trinity and the Incarnation, everything in the church revolves around these two doctrines. In short, the church is the incarnation of the life of the Holy Trinity. The church itself is the experience of salvation. The church is the experience of salvation itself. So, you know, it's a really good paragraph. Yeah. Take that home and write that in your notebook, you know. Um, uh, Let's see. We do have we do have some quotes from the fathers. Let's read it. Let's read the there are just two quotes from the fathers of the church. This first one is from St. Irenaeus of Leon. He says, Here then is the plan of our faith, the foundation of the building and the glue of our way of life. The first article is God the Father, uncreated, indescribable, invisible, one God, the creator of all things. The second article is the word of God, the son of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who was set forth by the prophets, each contributing his share of the prophecy according to the plan of the Father and through him all things were made. Now in the fullness of time, in order to sum up all things in himself, he has become a man among humans, visible and tangible in order to abolish death, show forth life, and establish communion between God and man. And the third article is the Holy Spirit, through whom the prophets prophesied, the fathers were taught the things of God, and the righteous were led in the way of righteousness. 
in the fullness of time, he has been poured out in a new way upon humanity, everywhere renewing us to God. And we have a quote by, uh, from the great canon, which is also called the Canon of Repentance, by St. Andrew of Crete. Trinity beyond all being, worshipped in unity, take from me the heavy yoke of sin, and in thy compassion grant me tears of compunction. O virgin and violet, and mother who has not known man, from thee has God, the creator of the ages, taken human flesh, uniting to himself the nature of man. Another way of saying <laughs> these things that we, that we wrote on the board in beautiful language. And, and the church is always trying to kind of explicate and explain, you know, to describe the mystery of God's self-revelation. And, you know, um, that which that cannot be comprehended truly by the human mind. One of my favorite sayings um, from the fathers of the church is by St. Gregory Palamas, who says, God is not only beyond knowing, because God is uncreated and we're finite. God is infinite, beyond knowing. God is, he's not you know, if we have an eye, like the fathers will talk about what we call apophatic theology, meaning negative theology. You can say so many things about God, but God is not circumscribed or limited to our understanding of who he is. God's not circumscribed or limited by, by the words we use. And so if we say something about God, then we also have to say that, well, then but God is also beyond that then. Like... We say, well, God is, if God is eternal, if we have a, a concept, conception of eternal, then we have to say that he's pre-eternal. <laughs> you know, he's beyond eternity then. You know, he's always greater than and beyond that which we can comprehend. But it reveals the love of God for us that we could even speak of him in, in human terms, that we could speak of the uncreated. But God is not only beyond knowing in the human sense, but he's also beyond unknowing because there is no life apart from God. So I love that, that quote by St. Gregory Palamas. Um, I was going to see if we could... Um, we finished that chapter, and we already talked about the sign of the cross a few weeks ago. So we don't need to go into that again. Um... And I was thinking about getting into uh, another, another kind of practical tip or popular topic. Um, any thoughts about what we talked about? It's a pretty heavy, isn't it? So the, the rest of the, the time, I mean, in all, actually all of our life together is kind of teasing that out that mystery of God's self-revelation in the person of Jesus Christ and God's self-revelation as Trinity and the experience, the entry into the love of God. And actually, the fathers, for all the words, all the prayers and all the beautiful services that we do that bear witness to, to the reality of God's love, there's a really high place in the Orthodox spiritual life given to silence. There's a sense in which the true moment of prayer is where you sit 
in silence before the uncreated God. Not expecting God to communicate to you in any human way through the limitation of language, speech or concepts. Or, and God isn't expecting you to perform or prove anything to him. But there's the experience in silence of co-being, of just being together with one another. And uh, it's, it's hard to experience that, actually. It's hard, it's hard to sit in silence without our mind just going everywhere. And so that's why, actually, we have to train ourselves to pray, to spend time reading the scriptures. And we have to spend time um, saying prayers that ho- help us to hone our focus on Christ. As we say in the, in the secular work world, we have to narrow our scope, you know, during the time of prayer so that we can strive to give our undivided attention to God. And you might catch little moments of it when you're trying to enter into, when you're seriously, you're not just trying to do prayer, you're trying to actually enter into prayer. You're trying to experience prayer as St. John Climacus calls it, converse and union with God. That's how he defines prayer. Converse and union with God. And... Um, when you're experiencing that by employing the Jesus prayer, using your prayer rope, or when you're using the prayer book and realizing your, your own distance from God and your imperfection and how he, how he meets you in, in your sin and embraces you and loves you, there are moments where the only suitable response is to just stop and just be still with him. And it's okay for you to do that if you feel that happening. Just to stop. I can't, I can't say another word. You know, you just, wow. And it might just be for a few seconds even. And then your mind goes, I like sandwiches or something. You go, okay, I need to get back to, have mercy on me, O God, according to thy great mercy or something, you know. Um, so. Yeah, to stand in awe. And he also said famously, silence is the, there are two translations, silence is the language or the mystery of the age to come. Yeah, chew on that one, you know, a little bit. Because our goal is not not to just heap up a bunch of words and, you know, know a bunch of things. Our goal is actually to, to enter into the experience of being with God. It it sounds so shallow in human words, but but if you get a if you get a little taste of it, like a little glimpse of it, and you don't give up on it, if you remember that first love, that little that little wound that God gives you. Um, then you won't want anything else. You know, everything temporal is far second to that taste of the uncreated sweetness of God's love for us and His presence. So, and I think that if we if we if we really are desiring it, um, sincerely. When we, when we come together here in the services of the church, 
um, especially. We're given a really special opportunity to experience that. And not just because of the ambiance or the chant, but because, because the church is a theanthropic life organism. So we experience that. We get little tastes, imperfect as we are, little glimpses, little insights into what that life looks like. So anyway, um, why, don't, why don't we just stop there for today? I have a lot of little practical topics I was thinking we can go into, like lighting candles and lighting lamps, like why we use candles, why we have lamps in the church. We talked about the sign of the cross a while back, um, setting up a prayer corner, why we use incense in the church. Another one is, um, I've got all these little notes and things, men with long hair and beards. What's up with that? Everyone's like, oh, do that one, Father. Cassocks. Why do you wear that black cassock? That's another one. Um, why the church does not use musical instruments. That's kind of a longer one. Why in the world do we kiss the hand of the priest? So there are things like that. Are there any of those that are interesting, sound interesting to you guys? Which one should I do next week? They would, yeah. A lot of those are the, real, are the ones that, that repulse people. They're not used to it. It's like... It's weird or different. So maybe I should just pick one. Yeah. I'd like to kind of, what I've done in the past is I just kind of tack them onto a session. Like they just take another 10 minutes. So if we finish early, um, I can do one. Or sometimes I'll start a session with one of those. But uh, I know, like I get the question about the long hair and beard all the time. So... And I don't know if I, did I ever tell you the story of when I went home to visit my family a while back before I was a priest? So I had to have been, you know, maybe five years ago. They asked me if they knew I was getting more deeply involved in the Orthodox Church and they had visited here. They're my Protestant family. They said, um, someone told me, if, if you become an Orthodox priest, we have to wear one of those dresses when you visit us. One of those black dresses. <laughs> it's like, because it's so foreign to them. You know, they've got like Pastor Jason, you know what I mean? Who wears, who wears a, you know, a polo shirt and, you know, or a flannel and jeans or something. I mean, and that's what I, I mean, I grew up, I was playing the bass guitar in the, in the worship band with my jeans on, you know. Um, believe that or, you know, if you picture that. But, uh, but anyway, so it's just, it's very different to them. So the, the cassock thing, you know, there are a lot of those, like, that's seemingly superficial, you know, or the kind of the outward facing things of orthodoxy that people encounter and they just automatically go, whoa, that is weird. Why would I want to go any deeper than that? Guys who look like that, they have to, they have to look like that, you know, stuff like that. They don't see that it's born out of the, the living tradition of the church because they're seeing it from the opposite end. So anyway, well, I'll start, I'll start going into some of those topics. And if you guys can think of any, like you asked me a really good one and maybe I should write a little thing about it. Um, why we use written prayers. Why do you use written prayers? And I can kind of wax on about that one. I can kind of, you know, talk about it. 
in a way that makes sense. But it might be helpful actually to put something in writing too. So um, if you guys think of any of those other topics, let me know. Okay. And uh, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll start doing those again before uh, we jump into our sessions. Do you think as the bishop, because if I remember, the bishop's going to come and visit. Yeah. Um, as we get close to that, maybe you can unpack some of the stuff that are going to be done at that service. Oh, yeah. I could. I could, yeah. I could talk a little bit about what happens when a, when a hierarch comes. I mean, we'll talk about bishops at some point in the catechism class, the place and the purpose of the bishop. But we'll talk, talk about it kind of on a you know, higher level, general. But um, like I can pull out some of the stuff that you'll see, um, some of the, the things that he'll, he'll use, like the special, we've got special candlesticks, for example. I can pull those out and put them right on the table for you and tell you what they represent and uh, maybe share some pictures and things. So, all right. Yeah, thank you. That's good questions. Um, and if you guys think of any other, I've got, maybe I can share a list of topics that I, that I already have and, uh, and then see if you guys have any in addition to those. Yeah. You know what would be really helpful is if you had like a Google Docs that we all had access to, that we could all type our questions throughout the week. Yeah. Yeah. Google, go, Google Docs? What? It would be a lot of questions. Yeah. It would be a lot of questions. Only topics that we can add to your list. You yeah. Just on. That all of us could, you could right. just forward it. To well, and then course. I could. We could just go pop into the Google Docs. Yeah, and sure. And what we wanted. If that works for you guys. Yeah. I can create, we have, I'm, I'm looking at our St. Paul Google Drive right now. Yeah. So. Sure. I can do that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll just, um, I'll set up a Google Doc in my catechism file. Yeah, and, then you guys and, invite us all. and I'll invite you all. Yeah, yeah, I will. And, uh, and then we actually have like 20 people on our list who just kind of come and go at different times. But uh, that'd be great. All right, so let's end there. We'll say a prayer together. Okay, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. O Christ, our God, who at all times and in every hour in heaven and on earth art worshipped and glorified, who art long-suffering, merciful and compassionate, who lovest the just and showest mercy upon the sinner, who callest all the salvation through the promise of blessings to come. O Lord, in this hour, receive our supplications and direct our lives according to thy commandments. Sanctify our souls, hallow our bodies, correct our thoughts, cleanse our minds, deliver us from all tribulation, evil, and distress. Encompass us with thy holy angels that guided and guarded by them we may attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of thine unapproachable glory. For thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. Okay, God bless you all. Go in peace. Thank you.